kindness given to guilty sinners. And when grace comes into the heart, peace is sure to follow. Grace makes way for peace. Peace is calm and rest and stillness of heart. The best way, as I've done it before, to describe or to um, to uh, define this peace is to use the imagery of Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he was falling asleep, and the uh, storm came, and his disciples were frantic, and they awakened him, and he says to the wind and to the sea, "Peace, be still." And where there was turbulence, there was now calm. Brethren, that's the peace that's, t- that's described here. Because of God's gracious salvation, there's now peace, as we learned last Lord's Day, with God, which results in peace of God in the soul. A calmness, a stillness, Wherein there was turmoil, now there's calm. Grace and peace. But also sometimes, and, and probably a lot of times, grace is, is distinguished from peace. I mean, if you think about it, peace here is a grace. And so when there's grace distinguished from another grace, like grace and mercy, grace and peace... Usually it's right to say by grace is meant spiritual power. And I want to suggest to you that's what's happening here. Strength. Strength of soul. We need strength of soul because we're in a conflict. The whole book is going to spell that out for us. We're in a warfare. And we need peace of soul to give us stability in the midst of the conflict. Brother, just stop and think about it right here. We, we could spend the next 40 minutes easily just talking about how these two relate one to another. We need strength to fight the battle. And we need peace in the midst of the battle. And brother, we have it all right here. Peace to you, or, or grace to you, and peace. And it's a grace and a peace, a power and a calm that comes from the triune God. All right, so this phrase, him who is, who was, and who is to come, you might know is basically the New Testament counterpart to that covenant name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Now remember how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. I am. In other words, this phrase to him who is, was, and is to come is another way of saying that God is self-existent. That's really what it's saying. He's self-existent. He always is. He always is. Now, I'm not sure about the proper English, 
but it's certainly proper theology. God always is. He's above time and space. He's self-existent. And because he's above time and space, he created time and space. And because he's self-existent and above time and space, he's unchangeable. So really at the heart of this term, I am, that I am, this name Jehovah, Yahweh or Jehovah, are the concepts or at least three attributes. First, self-existence. Two, immutability, that is unchangeableness. And thusly, in the third place, transcendence. Because who else is self-existent and immutable? Nobody. Only God is self-existent and immutable. Every created being is not self-existent, but dependent upon God for their existence, and they're mutable. I mean, they're mutable. They're changeable, right? The angels change from good to bad. Man changed from good to bad, and we change from bad to good. And we're going to change again when Jesus comes back because we're going to be perfected. And we're going to be always changing on some level for the better, most likely, in heaven. As we're going to be plunging the deeps of the incomprehensible God. But even in heaven, we, we say that we're immutable, and that's true. But you have to be careful to clarify We're not immutable natively. See, God is immutably natively. Our immutability in heaven, the fact that we can't change in heaven, we can't fall from our state in heaven, isn't due to our nature, but to his promise and power. I mean, we're, as Christians now, we're in an immutable relationship with God in in one sense. We can never become unjustified, we can never become unregenerate, we can never become unadopted, we can never become unforgiven, we can never, to use the language coming up, become uh, unkings or unpriests. We're always kings and priests, we're always washed, we're always forgiven, and when we go to heaven we will be so for all eternity, but that's not natural to us, it's gracious to us, and it's, and it's based not upon our natures, but upon his promise and power. But brethren, God never changes, he can never change for the worse, because he's perfect, and he can never change for the better, because he's perfect. And he's the only being who's natively, essentially, and eternally immutable. He is. And he always will be. And he always is and will be the same. That's the point. And then the second person is described as the seven spirits. Now listen to this. This is why you have to be careful in trying to interpret the book of Revelation woodenly literal. 
Remember what we said last week, seven is a unique number to the book. There's seven everything. It's, in fact, the structure of the book is seven cycles of seven. There's seven churches. There's seven trumpets. There's seven beatitudes. There's seven everything. And guess what? There's seven spirits before the throne. Now, it's because of such ignorance in terms of understanding the book accurately that people like Benny Hinn actually come up with a system that there are literally seven Holy Spirits. He actually teaches that. But that's heretical. There's only one Holy Spirit. But why does John describe him as the seven spirits? Because remember what seven symbolizes. Completion or fullness. It's simply speaking of the full and complete ministry of the Holy Spirit in working grace and peace in the hearts of God's elect. And... uh, The Holy Spirit, in fact, we're going to find this, I think, five times in the book, the Spirit described as the seven spirits. And then you have the Son in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. And the Son here is described as incarnate, Jesus Christ. And then he's described in a threefold way, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. All right? And we're going to come to that, but I want to back up and answer this question. Why does John put the order of the Trinity in this unique way, whereas usually it's Father, Son, and Spirit? Here it's what? Father, Spirit, and Son. Well, here's why, likely. The whole passage and the whole book is a vision into, John is, as it were, looking into the temple made without hands. All right? So let's just go back to the temple that Moses made. Or uh, he made the tabernacle, but it was essentially the same. And then, of course, Solomon and, and, and others made the temple. But if you went into the tabernacle or temple, you're going to go into that big room, And then you're going to go into the small room, the Holy of Holies, and that's the throne room. Okay, and it speaks of a throne. You see it? The seven spirits who are before the throne. And guess what was before the throne or before the the veil that led into that smaller room where the throne was? What was on this side of the veil? The sevenfold lampstand. And what did that throne, or what did the Ark of the Covenant symbolize? God's throne. That's where God reigned. And what did that lampstand with the seven arms represent? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think that's in part why he's here described as seven spirits. And then you come further back and you go outside the larger room, the holy place. And what was outside the temple? The altar where the lamb was slain. So I think what John is doing, he's taking us in and and we see the throne, the father. He backs us up and we see the seven spirits in the lampstand. By the way, well, we'll get to some of that imagery. It's going to be brought back up here in the next few weeks. 
But then when he come back out, outside the temple, there's the altar, and there, that brings his mind to the one who died, shed his blood. Okay, listen to me. Is there blood in the passage? Where's the blood at in the temple? It's out, on the, it's out there on the uh, altar. Is there a sevenfold spirit in the, in, the, uh, in the passage? Yeah. Where was the seven? Where was something that was sevenfold in the temple? It was in that first room and it was the candlestick. Was there a throne in the temple? Yeah. It was beyond the veil. Brother, now obviously John has in mind that, doesn't he? He has a throne and he has a sevenfold lampstand and he has blood. And that's most likely why he puts it in that order. Father, spirit, and then the son. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Oh, man. The, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful. Make you want to start dancing. Just close your eyes, everybody. But notice that the sun is described in a threefold description. And that is, is very important. Because notice, the faithful witness, that refers to his earthly ministry, where, wherein he bore faithful witness of the Father's person and plan. That was his life. And then the firstborn from the dead, that's his what? His death and resurrection. And then ruler over the kings of the earth, that's his what? Is exaltation. And so what you have is Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and exaltation all marked out in this blessed Trinitarian benediction. Then that brings us, secondly, to a doxology. It's really hard to move on from that, but you have to. And that's verse 5b and 6. To him who loved us. Now remember, this is in response to that benediction. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now let's look at the doxology under these two heads. What Christ did and why. And we're going to have to go out of order. We're going to go first of all and see what he did and then we'll back up and see why. Well, what did he do? He washed us from our sins in his own blood and he made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Christians have been washed from their sins. Now let me just say, you might know there's a textual variant. So if you have anything other than the Old and New King James, it doesn't say he washed us, but he freed us from our sins. And we're going to see that that's really saying the same thing. The issue isn't translational, it's textual, right? It's a textual variant. But nevertheless, let's stick with the inspired edition. And with the phrase wash. Because we're going to see they're basically saying the same things. 
Let me suggest to you that Christians have been washed from their sins by the blood in two ways. First, we've been washed from the filth of our sin, and that's probably what here is referred to. Oftentimes, the Bible uses the imagery of washing synonymous with regeneration. Right? I think this is what Jesus meant when he said that you have to be born of the Spirit and water. The Holy Spirit uses the Word, the Word to wash our filthy hearts in regeneration. We've been washed from our sins. That means our filthy hearts have been cleansed. And that relates to, doesn't it, uh, the, the term or the concept of being freed from our sins. Basically the same thing. Being freed from our sins is a reference to our liberation from the bondage of sin. So being washed from our sins, being freed from our sins, it refers to regeneration and that miracul- miraculous powerful change that takes place in the heart. Brother, just stop and think about it. We've been washed from our sins. But I think also it does include the notion of justification and the washing of our sins in the sense that we're forgiven. And uh, here it's more so like our records are cleansed as opposed to our hearts. When God cleanses the record, that is when he forgives us, when he washes away all of our sins, when he takes them away into the sea of his forgiveness, he also cleanses the heart so as to change us. So Christians are washed from their sins both with regards to their justification, that's forgiveness, and regeneration, that's that miraculous, powerful change that makes, as we're going to see here in a minute, people into kings and priests. But notice we're washed by the blood. And what does that mean? Well, it means Jesus' death. Blood is is short for death. In order for Jesus to atone for our sins, he had to do more than merely prick his finger. Somebody says, well, all he had to do was shed blood. Well, he could maybe prick his finger and, and shed a drop of blood. Would that atone for the sins of the world? Well, if God had decreed that it would and had established that it would, it would have. But he didn't. There had to be death. And that's what blood means. And blood is put for death largely because, well, for various reasons. But at least for this reason, because it describes the brutal nature of his death. He didn't just die of old age. He was taken in his youth. And he was beaten and mocked and ridiculed. And then he on the cross bore in his human body and soul the wrath of God. 
And then he closed his eyes and gave up his spirit. Then he died. In other words, it's through Jesus' death that we are washed from our sins. Let me put it like this. Jesus' death, not only the blood of Jesus or Jesus' death, same things. Not only is the cause of our forgiveness, but also regeneration. And that's like a package called salvation. We're washed from our sins. We're freed from the penalty. And here's where you can use the ESV. Freed. He freed, he freed us from our sins. He freed us from the penalty of our sins and the power of our sins. That's just another way of saying he washed us from the filth and the guilt. Either way you prefer. Now, notice though, he doesn't just wash us, does he? Brother, if that was all there was, that would be tremendous. But that's the negative side. There's a positive side. With regards to our justification, you know, there's a negative and there's a positive. The negative of our justification is that he takes away our sins. But the positive of our justification is he elevates us to a righteous position or status. And what is the positive status here in the text? Well, you can see it. And has made us kings and priests. Kings and priests. Or a kingdom of priests. It's obvious. Remember what we said. The, uh, John in the, in the book of Revelation is constantly Quoting or alluding to Old Testament texts. And here he has in mind Exodus 19.6. Where God promised Israel they would be what? A kingdom of priests. But in Exodus 19.6 it says, You will be unto me a kingdom of priests. And here we find it that he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Now... That text I alluded to, Exodus uh, 19.6, is quoted and applied to the church in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And here it's applied again to the church. In other words, what we learn here is the church is the new Israel. They are a royal priesthood. Simply put, as Christians, we are anointed as kings and priests. The key here is, well, in part, is in verse 5, the very beginning, Jesus Christ. So we use those terms so frequently, brethren, it's almost impossible to be moved by them. I have to admit it. I read them all the time. You just skip right over it. But stop and think. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the old, to the Hebrew term for Messiah, and they both mean anointed one. Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. The anointed prophet, priest, and king of the new covenant. And because we're in him, we too are what? Anointed as prophet, priest, and king. There's just two out of three mentioned. And this is implied, isn't it, in the term Christian. 
Christian brethren. Stop and think of it. Christian. We're Christians because we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're anointed with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we are made prophets, priests, and kings. We're prophets because we teach the truth. We're, we're priests because we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, pleasing through Christ. And we're kings because we rule in Christ even now over our enemies. And, and this really goes back to the ESV, doesn't it? Who freed us from our sins. Liberated us from our sins. And now we are victorious over our enemies. And we are with Christ. Reigning upon a throne over our enemies. And when he comes back. We will with him rule over the heavens and earth. But notice. As we're looking at the the, uh, doxology. Why Christ did all this. Why did Christ do all that? Well, it's found right here in verse 5. To him who loved us. It's because he loved us that he washed us. Brethren, he doesn't love us because he washed us. He washed us because he loved us. Now we've made distinctions before with regards to the love of God. And there is a sense in which he loves us with a love of delight after he washes us. But it was a love of benevolence that brought him down from heaven to become incarnate as a man and to shed his blood to wash us from our sins. What position was we in when he shed his blood to wash us from our sins? Romans 5. We were enemies. We were helpless. We were weak. We were needy. We were guilty. We needed to be liberated from our sins. Or we needed to be washed from our sins. Irrespective of the variant. We needed to be saved from our sins. That's the predicament that he finds us in. When he shed his blood. So he shed his blood. Because he loved us. He doesn't love us because he shed his blood. Now that brings us then thirdly to a summary. And I just have to skip over this. Verse 7 is a summary, and it's built on two key texts in the Old Testament, Zechariah and Daniel. You know, both of these texts, these are quotations and allusions from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. In fact, they're actually, that Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 are also quoted in all the the first three Gospels in, in that section of Jesus' discourse about his second coming. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, for example, speaks about him returning at the end of this age with the clouds and every eye seeing him. In other words, he's going to come back literally, physically, bodily, And there's going to be a single resurrection and universal judgment. 
And verse 7, there's the two responses that will be seen on that day represented. Uh, Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Talking about particularly the Jews who killed him and the Romans who killed him. But talking about all men by nature who are outside of Christ. Because notice it says, and all the tribes, that is the nations of the earth, will mourn because of him. That's a, that, that mourning is not a, a repentant mourning. It's the lamentation that accompanies the acknowledgement that you will be forever damned. That's the morning of that, of verse 7. When Christ comes back, the world will weep. Remember what Jesus said, Woe be to those who laugh now, for they shall weep. And they've laughed all their lives. They thought it was funny. They thought it was funny when their mom and dad were pleading with them with tears to repent from their sins and come to God through Christ. They thought it was funny when the preacher was pleading with them to turn from their sins and come to God through Christ and be washed from their sins. And they laughed and they lived it up. But there's coming a day when their laughter shall be turned to mourning. But remember what Jesus said in contrast to that. Blessed are they who mourn now. For they shall laugh. And that's I think represented at the very end of seven. Even so. Amen. That's John saying even so let it be. That's him putting his stamp of approval upon it. Yes. This is a good thing Jesus coming back. This is how he ends the book, isn't it? Even so, Lord Jesus, come. This is, uh, this is a short of that. Even so, may it be. May that day come quickly. Why? Because he wanted the world to mourn. Not so much so. Though there are those who were martyred beneath the altar asking, How long, O Lord? Until you revenge our blood. But I think John is foremostly desirous to see that one who was pierced for him. He's anticipating Christ's coming. This really, verse 7 is a, sum, a summary really of the book. And then verse 8, you have a description of Christ. Christ himself, as it were, now breaks into the front stage. And uh, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. He describes himself in four ways. The first three are basically synonymous. I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, who is who was and who is to come. Those are all basically saying the, th- the same things. Alpha and Omega, you know, are the first and last alphabet uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. Saying the same thing as beginning and end. 
Brethren, when, when, when Christ speaks of himself as the Alpha and Omega, or beginning and the end, it doesn't mean he had a beginning any more than it means he has an end. And why do people get so tripped up over the fact that Christ describes himself as the beginning? Why not get tripped up over the fact that he describes himself as the end? He's describing himself as one who always is. That's what it means. He has no beginning. He has no end. He created the beginning and the end. That's the point. And then he describes himself at the end of verse 8 as the Almighty. Which is used eight times in the book of God. And it refers to his infinite power. It's a divine title. Only God is the Almighty. So the one who's described here as the who describes himself as the Alpha Omega beginning end, who is, who was, and who is to come, is none other than the Almighty God. Now, we have only a few minutes, so let me just suggest to you that the introduction of the book, or at least this section of it, verses 4 to 8, is intended to set the temple for the rest of the book. Let me, let me put it this way. Verses 48, 48 provide four reasons for the book. We find in verses 48, in miniature, everything else to come. Reason one. Why did God enable John, inspire John to write this? Or why did John write this to the churches? Reason one. To remind them, or let's put it in this, let's put it, let's include us. To remind us who Christ is. Remember I said that's really the main point and purpose of the book. And here we're reminded that the one who sits on the throne, who loved us and shed his blood to wash us from our sins is none other than the almighty, self-existent, never-changing God. I'd rather just stop and think of that for a minute. And how would that minister to the poor Christian who's enduring all of that mistreatment at the hand of godless men? Your enemies are too powerful for you, but you know what? There's one who's on your side who's almighty God. He never changes. He's self-existent. And he's all-powerful. A second reason to remind us who we are in Christ. If he loved you and he died for you to wash you from your sins and you're now kings and priests, he's not going to leave you alone. <clears throat> he will come back. He will repay those who trouble you. And he will rescue you from that tribulation. 
I think John wants us to remember who we are. According to this text, we are loved, we are washed, we are kings, we are priests. Now just stop and think, put it in your mind like this. Here's this little band of Christians in these little dinky churches. Now I don't know the size of the churches, but I I suspect... They didn't reach three or five thousand yet in attendance. Probably had three or five in attendance. And the world despised them and hated them, ridiculed them, mocked them, beat them, and killed them. And yet, all the while, they're loved by God washed by Jesus' blood and their kings and priests to God. The king of Rome, Caesar, the Roman emperor, hating them, despising them, mocking them, beating them, killing them. All the while they're kings. All the while they are a royal priest. Brethren, just stop and think. Though we might be few, though we might be odd, though we may be hated and despised, laughed at and ridiculed, we are loved by God, we're forgiven by God, and we're royal priests who are intended to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable in Christ. A third reason to remind us that Christ is coming back. Brethren, that's a that's a rather evident point of the book, isn't it? And the problem here is, is that we all affirm Jesus' second coming. All of us affirm that as Christians. But here's the problem: we rarely actually think about it, and if truth were to be told, we don't get all that excited about it. And let me ask and let me tell you some reasons. One, because we lack the assurance that our sin that we are loved and that our sins have been washed away. And there's a little nagging voice in the back of our soul that begs the question, are you really loved of God? And have you really been washed from your sins? Well, this is how you handle that. Hindrance. You handle, you, you address it head on. And you say, you know what? My faith is weak. My works are weak. My love is dim. But I know this. My only hope of entering heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. My friends, isn't the tragedy that so many Christians talk so ignorantly about the blood that a lot of Christians, in response to it, don't like to talk about the blood? The problem is, is those Christians who make most of the blood don't know what the blood means. And Christians who have a robust doctrine of the atonement, who know what the blood means, rarely talk about it. Brethren, we ought to talk, and we ought to shout, and we ought to get excited about the blood of the Lamb. 
He shed his blood. My sins have been atoned for. I've been washed, both with regards to my justification and sanctification. I've been freed from my sins. He wants us to remember that. And he wants us to remember that he's coming back. Another reason why we fail to think about Jesus coming is because of preoccupation. With even the lawful good things of this world. Brother, I'm guilty of both of those. I didn't have to look them up in a commentary. I didn't have to Google it. What are reasons why Christians don't look for Jesus' second coming? No, those are just two that came to mind from my own experience. And so we have to constantly, brethren, be drumming it into our ears. This world is not our home. Our beloved Savior is coming back. Even so. Amen. Fourthly, to remind us our chief end as we wait. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. Well, this is what this text says. We are to worship him as priests, as royal priests, right? That's service, that's worship. And we're also to, in light of that benediction, in light of the grace and and peace that's come down to us, what are we to do? We are to worship him and ascribe to him glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words... We are to serve him, love him, and worship him while we wait. Benediction always results in doxology. Or put another way, God gives us grace that we might give him praise. That's what we're to do, brethren. What are we to be doing as we wait for Jesus to come back? We are to serve him and we are to worship him and we are to render back to him praise for all of his grace and peace he's bestowed upon us. All right, brethren, we know everything right now. We know who God is. We know why he came. We know about salvation. We know what he's done for us. We know what we're to do now as we wait for him to come back. Brother, we can close the book up, go home, and and, and everything's, everything's been said. And we're only on verse 8 of the first chapter. And what we're going to see in verse 9 and following are basically the same things that are stuffed into verses 4 to 8. We're going to see them over and over again. There's um, a hymn that came to mind. 